When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. John Wick Wax, the box office edition. It's Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. On today's show, John Wick 4, it did. It blew away the box office this weekend. The action tetralogy starring Keanu Reeves has its biggest opening yet, we will discuss. And then Swarm is the new show from Donald Glover. He of Atlanta fame and Childish Gambino. It follows... An Obsessed Fans Rampage. It's on Amazon Prime. And finally, why has interest in classical music suddenly and really completely unexpectedly resurged? We will discuss a piece by the uh, music critic, Ted Joya. Joining me today is Nadira Goff, culture writer for Slate. Nadira, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So psyched to have you. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. All right, shall we make a show? Let's do so. All right, well, John Wick 4 is the wild, weird action blockbuster tetralogy. It stars Keanu Reeves in the title role, of course. He's a retired hitman who's taking serial revenge on his former employer, a global and all-powerful mafia syndicate. There's a, a now mostly forgotten backstory about a puppy, I think, and a weird half-explained mythology involving the Continental Hotel chain. It's some kind of mafia-neutral ground. Let's face it, you came here for the elaborately choreographed ultra-violent martial arts and the oddly narcotic atmospherics. Uh, and, of course, the stoical semi-non-acting of Keanu Reeves. You get all of them aplenty in this uh, fourth installment. It's been a huge hit. Uh, it also gives us Bill Skarsgård as a really deliciously weird uh, and wonderful supervillain, many, many others. Shamir Anderson is wonderful as Mr. Nobody. Uh, and Donnie Yen returns as the blind assassin. Just a t- It's stuffed full in nearly three hours. It's directed by the former stunt double and now action auteur genius. Chad Stahelski. Okay, we're going to listen to a clip. It involves Lawrence Fishburne, yet another amazing uh, a cameo in this movie. He plays the Bowery King, and he's meeting up with John Wick to supply him with a bulletproof suit. Let's listen. Bonjour, Monsieur Wick, and welcome to La Resistance. A little far from home, aren't you? Well, your little act of uncivil disobedience inspired me, John. I'm branching out, spreading my wings. How goes the ground farewell tour? Coming to an end. So it seems, so it seems. 42 regular, wasn't it? It's Kevlar front to back. The latest in ballistic chic. Appropriate for all formal occasions. Weddings, funerals, high table duels. After all, man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. 
I mean, Dana cursed me for the first time listening to that clip. Ballistic Chic is a good tagline for all of these Wick movies, especially the later installments of the Wick movies. Extraordinary looking films uh, and just wild atmospherics uh, at the center of which is this stoical Clint Eastwood-like performance. This is the most... This one's overstuffed, right? It's like close to three hours. It has shades of the good, the bad, and the ugly with this laconic Eastwood-like Keanu at the center of it. What'd you make of it? I mean, this movie is not my kind of Keanu. I love Keanu, and I appreciate the artfulness of these movies. I can't say that this is my favorite way to take in my Keanu-ness, but I'm sort of just impressed by the longevity and the mutability of this franchise and that it has such an organic feeling about it. When you look back at the original John Wick, a much smaller scale movie with a much smaller scale mythology and, and not, not a very high budget movie, yeah. right? And kind of a, it became this huge sleeper hit, word of mouth. I just feel like it's a more organic franchise than a lot of the ones that we keep on returning to, you know, and that it's sort of grown because of audiences love for all of those weird elements that you just described. I mean, I will say to introduce a dour note to the conversation that seeing this on the same day that there was news of a school shooting, yes. you know, it just had to land in a somewhat bad taste in the mouth way. That said, I mean, I am not one of those people who blames video games, which these movies sometimes resemble, or movies for shootings. It is obviously the guns. This is extremely stylized and abstract violence, yeah. you know, but it is impossible not to make that connection in the in the gun-soaked culture we live in. Like, these are really um, violence-worshipping and specifically gun-worshipping movies, and the body count is uncountable. You know, I tried to keep track of how many people had died in this, and by 20 minutes in, I had mm. given up because it was in the dozens already. Mm. I don't know. I, I can't make up my mind at the same time, even after I had sort of thought, like, enough already. This movie's gone on for three hours, and, you know, the violence was starting to get to me. Then, you know, there's just some <laughs> some moments of incredible imagination at the end in terms of, of the fight choreography, yeah. the comic choreography. These yeah. movies don't take themselves seriously. There's tons of extremely funny moments. Mm -hmm. I, I want to hear more specifically from you guys because, Steve, I think you vibed harder on this than I did. But I would say that, as you said, Steve, if you want your wick fix, you are going to get oh, it. Yeah, and how. definitely. Nadir, before I wick wax on <laughs> let me turn to you first i mean they are ultra violent it's highly stylized obviously video you know first person shooter or or ultra violent video games are an influence hong kong action is a huge huge influence on this franchise um they're both beautifully choreographed and and gory mm -hmm. beyond uh gory they don't honor human life in one sense in a way that could be disturbing where do you come out in this mix on the wick movies I'm starting to realize that how much overstylized things can make me forgive a lot of other stuff, which is maybe not the best thing to say about myself. But I, before watching this movie, had only ever seen the first John Wick. And I dragged along with me to the theater two people, a friend and their father, who hadn't seen any John Wick movies. So we watched a YouTube recap of one through three before we went into the theater to watch this movie. And by the end, all three of us were pretty sold on watching the next one. So I think that says a lot about just how much is in these massive three hours. And during the, the first half of the movie, at about the hour and a half mark, I looked up how long the movie was because I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I was bored. I don't think it's necessarily possible to get bored during this movie. But it was because I was wondering, like, what other places 
can this movie take it? Where else can this movie go mm-hmm. beyond here? And it turns out it can go so many places and do so many things. I mean, I think the movie was very comical. I thought that the fight choreography was astoundingly beautiful. I'm a huge, huge fan of martial arts films. And just seeing Donnie Yen and Hiroyuki yes. Sonata fight each yes. other, is, it's like it's like the final boss fight of all martial <laughs> arts actors' final boss fights. It was amazing. And the sort of martial arts influence throughout the movie is super vast. I mean, from everything to having those actors and to incorporating what seemed to be more like judo and jujitsu and the actual choreography to having the uh, Paris radio station, the call sign being WXIA, which is wuxia, which is a genre of Chinese martial arts stories in film. I mean, I think that that inspiration through the movie just carried the whole thing for me. And so I loved the sort of all the ancillary parts, all those sort of smaller characters and the energy that they brought. And it was also just very beautifully shot. So there are a lot of things that I loved about this movie that really sort of took it over to the edge. And I just had a great time. Yeah. I mean, okay, I loved this movie. First of all, we have sat through so many overstuffed three-hour portentous, you know, totally unearned pregnant silence Marvel movies. And by 30 minutes in, I'm looking at my watch. I couldn't believe when I walked out I'd been in the in there three hours. It's not only the exquisite choreography of the fight scenes, which are second to none. And as you say, it's like it's all in there. Hong Kong action, Buster Keaton, Looney Tunes. I mean, there's this just highly elaborated relationship to all all of cinematic kind of history, the movement of bodies, the coordinated movement of bodies through space made to look spontaneous in the context of a film. It's that, but it's also the stuff in between the fights. I mean, there are long kind of weird crepuscular mood pieces in between that actually do serve to heighten um, these moments of like explosive violence, you know, the I, the courage of the film's weirdness, right? Like the fact that these continental hotels in every city are, serve as a neutral ground and the fact that there are these weird quasi-medieval high table Latinate, you know, allusions that, that, you know, that sort of set the rules by which the 12 mafia families that control the globe you know, coordinate with one another, and nobody is above those. This kind of weird medieval uh, honor. You know, obviously the the relationship of of certain kinds of Asian action movies to um, you know the shogun, uh, you know the samurai tradition. You know, is there as well. I just thought it was cinematically a, a like genuinely a tour de force, and that this director started out as Keanu Reeves' stunt double in the Matrix movies, and has made this kind of homage to sort of everything, right? Everything he weirdly like adores and kind of pulled it off. I, I just I just kept saying to my incredulous wife on the phone, that movie kicked ass. Like I couldn't <laughs> stop saying it. That movie kicked ass. That's what going to a movie should feel like. <laughs> Well, the audience certainly loved it. I don't know if you guys saw yeah. it with with yeah, packed houses. It. My house, the house I saw it was not packed, but it was enthusiastic, you know. And there was lots of talking back to the screen, like "Get up, Wick!" You know, when he'd be knocked <laughs> out, people basically encouraging him to get yes! up and fight once he more. Is so interactive. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah. Well, in terms of the atmospherics, I just have to shout out as well the villain in this. Like James Bond movies could only dream of such an incredibly funny villain. Bill Skarsgård is the the marquee. Oh, so this kind marvelous. of how do you describe the marquee? The marquee? <laughs> this this spoiled Frenchman who all of his leisure time is spent doing so things good. like watching dressage lessons, you know, with and women like on horseback, dainty pastries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's so French. He's so French that he goes into a. <laughs> there's a moment when he goes into some sort of a huge opera house all by himself to watch a ballerina in a tutu dancing on the stage. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so decadent. It's so weird. It's so delicious. You're right. It's like Bond. It's like this thing that Bond hasn't been able to do since the 60s. This movie is now doing, right? The weird, incredible supervillain who's partially, you know, ultra-refined, cultured, and a low-life sadist. Anyway, you know, I, it's so funny, Nadir. I didn't don't think I knew this about you that you're a connoisseur of Asian action movies, and the the movie does two things that astounded me among many. But one is just the fight choreography. You have a camera that's in motion, bodies that are in motion, a plot that needs to stay in motion, and incoherent. Like God bless Marvel for finding indie directors to make some of their movies and give them some heart. But but actually, it's an art form to keep all of those things coherent so you know as the viewer where you are in space, where the camera is in space, and sort of why what's happening is happening. And the spatiality of it is very much in the control of the director. And then look at the cast list of this movie. I mean, it's like, it's you would think it can't possibly balance all of these people in a meaningful or even human way. And yet it weirdly does. Like, I mean, as you say, like... um, Hiroyuki is his name Hiroyuki Sonata. Am I Hiroyuki Sonata plays the owner yes. of the Japanese and continental. His daughter is is the Rina pop- Sawayama. Yeah. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Rina Sawayama. <laughs> she's amazing in the movie. So Rina Sawayama, for anyone who doesn't know, is a sort of mega pop artist. She's amazing. And this is if I'm not mistaken, her first, if not one of her first acting roles. And she absolutely kills it. Kills it. <laughs> and I think because she has a background in dance and because yeah. she's used to movement and performing, she was just sort of born for this role as the daughter and concierge um, of this Japanese continental hotel. Um, so she's the daughter of the owner and the concierge there. And she is just amazing in this movie and she's so good and it seems like they maybe are setting her up for a sequel or a spinoff and I cannot wait to see that happen if it's something that does happen. And and let me just add the economy with which they paint her relationship with her father so that you feel as though they're actually father and daughter for an action movie. Just amazing. I mean, I would argue it's maybe a little too much economy just to push back slightly. (laughs) I I was a little sad that there wasn't a bigger female character in this movie and she's the closest we come but she drops out of the movie pretty soon. I agree, Nadira, that she's probably in there to set up some sort of sequel. There definitely is a John Wick spinoff series being planned with Anna Diarmas called Ballerina uh, that may end up including Rena as well. I don't know. But yeah, to me, that was a bit of a weak point in the movie is that there was no female character. There was also, I mean, this I know this is not a movie about downtime or character development, but usually even in the most intense action movie, there's going to be some kind of moment where like the hero is binding his wounds in a gas station bathroom and looking introspectively <laughs> to the past or something. <laughs> I mean, this movie is so much about forward motion and forward momentum that yeah. there really is no time at all to get to know any of the characters to to whatever extent that would matter in a movie like this. But I will agree with both of you that just the kinetics of this movie and the the aesthetics of it take it 
98% of the way. You know, I maybe I didn't make it quite over the finish line in the way that you guys did. But Steve, the one response I wanted to have to what you were saying about this versus, you know, the Marvel action is that, I mean, a huge part of that is something very concrete, which is that these are, for the most part, practical stunts. Mm. And that Stahelski films them, you know, Fred Astaire style, like showing the whole body, Buster Keaton style, so that you can see that they're really happening. So all these legendary martial artists and Keanu fighting them are really doing those things. Or maybe once in a while it's a stunt person doing it for them, but it's a body in space doing it and not a, a, a visual effect. And that makes an enormous difference in our investment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, the movie is John Wick for, I think, you know, two thumbs just sort of as far up as they can practically go. And then one that's quivering slightly, but mostly all the way up. Um, check it out. I'd love to know what, what you guys thought of it. I think it's a, re- a remarkable thing. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, what do we have? Steve, our only item of business this week is to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to be talking about an article that appeared in The New York Times by Joseph Bernstein about Sigmund Freud and the return of Freudian psychoanalysis as a apparently stylish new form of (laughs) mental health treatment. Um, This is something that's new to me. I'm not sure that the case is totally made by this article. That's why we put it in plus. It's an excuse to talk about Freud, which is an ever-rich and fascinating topic. So we will dig into that in our bonus segment this week. Dana, I sense you're resisting the (laughs) analysis. Freud has returned in force. I can't do a German like a Freudian. You sound like a vampire. (laughs) I sound ridiculous. (laughs) Ah, my analyst, the undead. (laughs) If you're a Slate Plus member, you can hear that segment at the end of this show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, of course, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Remember that when you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and lots of other shows offer them too. And of course, you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. Most of all, you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that URL is slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, back to the show. Okay, well, Swarm is the new show from creator Donald Glover. He of Atlanta and uh, Childish Gambino fame. It's now up on Amazon Prime. It's uh, about a young Houstonian 20-something named Dre who's obsessed with the fictional pop star Nija, it's a thinly fictionalized version, as we'll discuss, I'm sure, at length, of Beyonce. She is one of the so-called swarm. It's the nickname given to Nija's superfans, much like the Beehive, for example. And after a traumatizing loss, Dre goes on a very Badlands-like spree, taking lurid revenge on anyone who dares slander or diss the queen. The show comes, as I said, from Donald Glover, but also Janine Neighbors, with whom he created Atlanta. 
And it stars Dominique Fishback as Dre. Let's listen to a clip in which she's talking to the boyfriend of her roommate, and she tells him that she was able to secure very, very expensive tickets to see Nigel live in concert. All right, let's have a listen. Thought she said y'all couldn't get tickets this time, even the cheap ones. The mall was going for three fifty a pop. I got tickets. How you broke? It's nausea. We have to make sacrifices. Damn, y'all be acting like y'all in some goddamn cult, some shit. You know, Naja, she just a regular woman too, right? She takes shit, she get fucked by her husband like everybody else. She is not like everybody else. She knows what we're thinking and she gives it a name. She's a goddess. Khalid! <laughs> She's gonna tell Marissa about the tickets. Uh-huh. Okay, Nadira, let me start with you. It's it, There's an interesting inner title at the beginning of every episode that says, this is not a work of fiction. And then something along the lines of any similarity to real people is is intentional. Obviously, the central conceit of the show is is the um, analogy to the real world fandom of Beyonce's. What did you you wrote an interesting piece for Slate in which you took issue f- with some of the ways in which that fandom has been portrayed? What do you make of the show as a show? And then what do you make of it in relation to the you know real circumstances it seems to be satirizing? Right. It's hard to separate the two, personally. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I felt while watching this show, especially the first half, was confusion. I wasn't entirely sure at what points what it was trying to say about stan culture, about Beyonce's fans as an, as an entire culture. I wasn't sure what it was trying to say about the way that culture behaves, but then also how it's treated by the rest of the world. I wasn't sure what it was trying to say about grief or mental illness. I wasn't, or eating disorders. I wasn't really sure at any point what it was trying to say. And I think that's maybe because in the first half of the show, it was trying to say too much. It was involving all of those things I just mentioned, plus other things. And then towards the second half of the show, I think it maybe loosens up a bit and sort of lets its hair down and then starts to get really good, for my opinion. But for the first half, you know, I was sold on this idea of this is a show that's going to be some sort of social critique or at least inviting social critique about Beyonce's Beehive. I am a member of the Beehive proudly. You know, I don't hide that. I stand behind it. I love Beyonce. And so I was really looking forward to this. I was also scared <laughs> to, to watch this. But I I didn't see myself in it. I didn't see anyone I knew in it really until the show sort of really got its legs in the second half. And what I ended up actually watching from my point of view was actually a show about someone who is deeply mentally ill and who is you know, suffering from a loss, as you said, and is then processing that and their sort of fan relationship is mapped onto that. But that's a different show entirely. And so I just, I was confused. I was frustrated. And I mean, I could talk about all the ways it's frustrating, but yeah, I just didn't really know what to make of it. Yeah. Dana, what about you? It's, it's, it should be said, this is a really dark, really macabre show and um, it's as dark as anything I can remember us seeing in a long time. It's not maybe meant to be connected with in some sense. It's meant to be alienating and 
almost sickening, I think, in in a way. It's sort of the anti-John Wick in that sense. Anyway, what'd you make of it? Yeah, I mean, more than anything, it made me think of of Donald Glover's music video. Remember that really viral video, This Is America, that he made, Mm -hmm. you know, that was also sort of shocking and violent, but on a sort of comic you know, had this very broad satire of American politics and was really gory. I mean, it, it, it had a similar feeling to this where it was right. sort of um, virtuosic and also off-putting <laughs> at the same time. And then at the end, you sort of didn't know what you were supposed to take away from it. I will say that I kind of structurally felt the opposite of Nadira. I was really excited for the first couple of episodes about where this might go. And then I started to find its structure really repetitive. I mean, essentially, it's sort of like every episode she goes to a different locale with a different, um, you know, fake identity and finds a new group of people to do violence to because of mm-hmm. something related to to Nijah, her idol. And that started to, see, to, to, to deliver diminishing rewards as far as I could see. And then suddenly, in the second to last episode of Seven, it develops this procedural element where this detective pops up who's investigating some of the violent crimes connected with Dominique Fishback's character. And it seemed like, well, why is she coming in so late? I don't know. I mean, this had the feeling in general of somebody some creators who had been given free reign to make whatever they wanted, which was great, but who had produced something that didn't quite have a shape. You know, seven episodes of of a half an hour each is not that much time to Mm -hmm. fill. And yet I found that this started to get tedious and repetitive in the middle. To me, the main, um, the best thing that this show brought me was a real appreciation of Dominique Fishback, who I've seen before in supporting roles. She's phenomenal. But, you know, watching her carry a role this difficult is pretty extraordinary. Also, this is billed as a comedy in the Amazon, you know, genre classification. And at first I was thinking, who are they kidding? Like, this is the darkest thing ever, as you said, Steve. But I think Dominique Fishback really also finds the incredibly dark comedy in it. There's a scene early on when she's she's stripping at a club, but she's just really putting nothing into it whatsoever. And her sort of low-effort yeah. striptease is great physical comedy, like really funny stuff. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I'm mystified by the show, but I'm also mesmerized by it. I've watched almost exactly half of it and at first thought I wouldn't stick with it and now feel like I, I have to. Um I have more questions than I have statements. I will say that it strikes me that the show, the impulse behind the show, seems to be a skepticism towards a certain kind of fandom. And that taken with, I mean, to put it mildly, but that taken together with that weird opening intertitle that says, yeah, I mean, effectively what that's saying is, yes, this is about Beyonce. It's about the beehive. It's not even inspired by that. Like, I want every episode right. to begin with that being reiterated it seems to originate in a kind of i would think semi-sacrilegious dislike of that phenomenon mm-hmm. and in the only way the satire becomes nidir i think i think what your piece was indicating was that the satire is only trenchant as a satire if you can extrapolate from this one highly unusual like at the very you know, kind of extremes of hero worship as escapism, as life escapism, to the phenomenon as a whole. And at that point, you're like, well, if you don't make that leap, if you don't see that that person is just a more extreme version of something that is essentially toxic and therefore important to understand as toxic, it it dies a satire. And then it's just this one heart-wrenching, I think tragically mentally ill and damaged human being right. com- committing this series of lurid acts. And it's, I, I just found myself 
unable to puzzle my way through that and yet unable unable to turn away because it seemed to be trying to tell us something that I can't quite access yet, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly how I felt. Like the show was maybe trying to scream at me some lesson that mm-hmm. I just for some reason couldn't hear or couldn't understand. The thing to know about the show is that you're absolutely right. It is supposed to represent a sort of hyper-realistic world that is realistic. It involves a lot of actual um, sort of mythical events that are confirmed or allegedly um, supposed to have happened to Beyonce. And that part I really enjoyed. The sort of uh, lore that someone bit her in a nightclub, mm-hmm. the um, you know the famous elevator fight that she had. These are all moments in Beyonce's sort of news cycle career that are present in the show and that are parodied in the show. And I really enjoyed that part. Simultaneously, almost all of the violent acts we see are actual violent acts that have happened in real life close to every episode starts with a location and a year um, and a month, I believe. And so the violent acts that you see in that episode are actually violent acts that in real life have occurred around that time, around that location. Mm. And so the show is definitely trying to make some sort of comment about a real life that we're living in. But it sort of falls flat to me on the simple understanding that Stan culture is a culture. It involves more than just one person. It has internal politics and external politics, right? There's the internal politics of am I a big enough fan to belong here and what makes us a fan? And then there's the external politics of how these fans are judged. And as someone who is a really big Beyonce fan, Beyonce fans are already already, you know, in some circles by some people considered to be sort of psychotic or, you know, unable to understand or just really wild or strong or whatever in some way that people kind of seem detached from. They're already derided as being sheep who just follow this singer and who, you know, tear everyone else down in her name. And so if you're going to do this show, then you have to sort of weigh that in addition to everything else. And mm. for the majority of the show, what we just get is a you know a show about one person, one fan, who's right. doing these things for reasons that are muddled. It's not, she's not just doing the, these things because she's a fan of Nija. She's doing these things for lots of different reasons. And so I think the show just has a fundamental misunderstanding of Stan culture and how it feeds itself and how everyone else interacts with it that I just came away feeling empty by and I think that doesn't sort of get remedied until the episode that changes its format that Dana mentioned which actually is my favorite episode of the season because you then finally get to sort of open this world to well how are other people perceiving this person and so yeah I don't know I think I think it's confusing and I think there are definitely parts of it that I enjoyed you know I don't want to sort of drive the whole thing but I overall just came away feeling like it was uh it was almost there almost there yeah, I think that what bothers me about that detective entering the story is the balance, uh, the shape of the season and the fact that it happens one episode before the mm. season is over. It made me yeah. feel like, why are we only getting this outside perspective right now? And my mind keeps returning to something that Dominique Fishback said in a, in a profile talking about preparing for this role. She was talking about how, you know, she's always obsessively prepared for roles by writing a journal as the character, which I thought was oh, really wow. interesting. But she said in the case of this character, she found herself unable to do it because uh-huh. she just didn't understand the character. And she describes a moment where 
she asked Donald Glover, why is she doing this? And uh, and his direction to her was essentially, I don't want to answer that question because, you know, you need to be struggling to answer it yourself, which is, I guess, a legitimate directorial choice. But the fact that the lead actress and the creator of the series were not did not have a conversation about why mm. she's doing this. I just I feel like there's a reason that we as viewers also feel somehow on the outside, you know, and I thought that we were going to be diving really deep into this exploration of this particular character. And like I said, I feel like instead we wound up seeing a repeated cycle of the same series of acts without very much insight into what it meant either for her as a human being, as a character, or what it was supposed to be saying about fandom and society. Um, Nadira, I have a question for you. Is part mm-hmm. of the confusion we're experiencing here a genre confusion? In your piece, you reference black serialism as a genre or subgenre. And I guess, you know, this calls to mind Jordan Peele, I would think. Yeah. And, you know, sort of working with the combination of a received genre and, and race as a central preoccupation of the, you know, black filmmaker, right? It's, it's, is there a way that that's that part of the alienation as a viewer we're feeling is very much an intent of both the genre and this specific installment? Potentially. I think it's really hard to answer that question because I do think that Donald Glover, the thing that he's really good at, evidenced by most of Atlanta, is black surrealism in television, similarly to Jordan Peele being incredible at black surrealism in film. And I think that in Atlanta, he used black surrealism to get to a lot of the sort of very intricate niche internal feelings about being a young black man and parent who's struggling to make it in a city that just seems to want to eat you alive or take you nowhere. And Mm -hmm. so I know that he's capable of doing it. And I'm saying this as a fan, but I want someone to critique us, you know? I want to to see our sort of culture on a screen in a way that's well-considered. And for some reason, this just didn't get there, and I can't fully pinpoint what it is. All right, well, the show is Swarm. It's on Amazon Prime. We're, we're struggling with it in ways that I hope are fertile, and we'd love to hear from listeners on this one. Like, what'd you make of it? Did it land? Did it not land? Have you puzzled out why you watched it or turned it off? Um, Shoot us an email. Okay, let's move on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall 
and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right, Dana. Well, um, for, I'm going to throw our third topic to you and Nadira relatively quickly because I only have sort of fringy things to say about it at this point. But, but we're responding to an article by the poet and music writer Ted Joya Uh, Which he begins by saying, you know, he wrote an article that went viral about the rising popularity of old music, that in the age of Spotify, you know, that people going back into the archives and listening to um, old pop and to a degree old jazz, uh, you know, just by the numbers, by the sheer empirical numbers, was beginning to rival people listening to new music. Well, he's back with another piece saying, six studies show an unexpected increase in classical music listening. And as you said before we started this segment, this is one of those ones where you click on it and you're like, yeah, yeah, fake trend piece. But the trend appears to be empirical and real here, as the other one was. Classical music of all things, right, making a kind of resurgence. I know that you listen to classical music uh, and love it. Um, why do you think this is happening? What'd you make of this piece? Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I basically, I feel like Ted Joya has now alerted me to this phenomenon that I will be looking out to see whether more evidence comes to support it. But there were some pretty big numbers in his favor in terms of, you know, just genre counts from big music streamers. There was a big European music streaming company that I think said that there was a 90% increase in 2022 in, in classical music downloads or, you know, streams. And uh, and that seemed really hard to account for. But part of um, Ted Joya was was theorizing that part of what accounts for it is that a lot of content creators, you know, people that are making YouTube videos and and TikToks and things like that, are streaming classical music along with it as a soundtrack. And uh, and that seems very valid to me. The idea that people, you know, where everybody's a filmmaker now and everybody's turning out their own little moody videos. And what better to score <laughs> that with? Especially because the rights issues are probably not as uh, as problematic as. Um, you know, hundreds of years old music. But I was going to ask you, Nadira, because I think you probably consume more TikTok than either Steve and I do. <laughs> do you do you see a lot of classical music ambiently appearing in, in people's videos? Yeah. And I was wondering how much of this article or how much of this rise, especially amongst younger listeners, was in part due to 
aggregated playlists on Spotify, such as, you know, like good music to study to. And uh, I know it's super popular. And so I was wondering, to what degree is this rise us being sort of force fed classical music without realizing it? Um, And so I would be interested to see the numbers of classical music increasing on these sort of mainstream aggregated playlists, perhaps. But I for sure think that I'm consuming it more than I had realized I was, especially since I just never would have believed this article personally because I don't, no one ever really talks about listening to classical music, no one that I know. And um, from personal experience, the Philly Pops, our Pops Orchestra, I know is closing. And so that to me was sort of a main signal that, oh, maybe people aren't going to the opera or going to see, you know, symphonies or orchestras as much as they used to. But this article also points out that there has been a slight increase in, in that, at least in certain cities and for certain operas and orchestras. And so I was very surprised to see all this data that definitely convinced me that classical music is on a rise. Kudos to Ted Joya to doing the empirical work here for us so we can spin out bullshit trend theories behind this. But, you know, I'll start with an personal observation, which is why I'm watching John Wick. John Wick's soundtrack is stuffed full of, like, somewhat harsh, unremitting electronic music, a lot of, Mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot of rock uh, or dance, you know, music. It's meant to be jarring and amping. And then at one moment, a very important plot moment, there's a piano nocturne. Nocturne number 20 by Chopin begins to play. And that feeling of, like, relief and poise that just flows over you, it's like a very specific varietal of endorphin that gets released when you hear a work of you know sort of total i mean just the word classical itself right like perfectly classically poised elegance or something and um i found myself going home and immediately making a chopin um nocturne playlist and then clicking on make a radio station of this and all of a sudden i've got this gigantic playlist and this was before i really dug into this topic there's something we, I, I would suspect, Dana, if I'm, if I can entice you to spin out a, a thinly sourced, baseless but intriguing theory about this, that there's, we must be wanting to escape something, or are seeking some kind of respite when we look to music like this, from something else, like any. This is gaining. This is where Dana looks at me like <laughs> the pigeon shad in my hair, and I know I've gone horribly wrong. But I guess this is just the, this is the part of cultural criticism I like the least. Is like <laughs> make a I'm vast you. make a vast yeah. um, overwhelming yeah. post modernity. Let's go. Why would people turn to classical music now? I mean, to me, it's very similar in a way to to what seemed like in the pandemic era this this move toward watching old classic films you know i mean it was mm, interesting, interesting. To, to see this area that's sort of always been my you know domain is just go back in the past you know when in doubt go watch an old movie and you know you'll get something out of it it seems like a lot of people including from younger generations turned to that in pandemic times in part because there weren't new movies coming out for a while you know and then after that the, the there was something of a, a traffic jam of movies coming out and hard to know what to see 
And as a result, it seems like classic film really had this moment, which was really well-timed for me with the release of a book about 100-year-old movies. So maybe something similar is happening in music. I mean, I guess the one big argument I could make about it just has to do with the Internet and the Internet making everything available, right? And that I can completely see why symphonies would be dying out. In my own hometown, San Antonio, recently lost its its symphony orchestra as well. at the same time that downloads are increasing, right? Because streaming has killed a lot of, um, of live music and, you know, sort of professional music careers. So it could be both good and bad for classical music that this is happening, right? It's a less elite art form because you can find it streaming on the internet everywhere. But then again, who's making a living, you know, playing the oboe in an orchestra anymore? That's so true. I'm also wondering how much our sort of obsession with nostalgia and period pieces has to do with it. When I think of classical music circulated on TikTok in today's era, I'm also reminded of the music that's featured in Bridgerton, Mm. which are like orchestral versions of very popular pop songs. This is a show that was massively popular and songs that I think were both laughed at, but also genuinely enjoyed by many people online and people that I talk to. And so I'm wondering how much our sort of the way we cater to those types of outputs, you know, those TV shows, those films has to do with this. Um, But one thing I did want to mention very quickly is that all of this uh, mention of Chopin reminded me of this TikToker. I believe the tag is at Apple Comedy, who during the pandemic, I finally gave in to TikTok and, you know, decided that this was my time. And he was very popular on TikTok for showing these moments of his daughter asking to hear Chopin and only Chopin like he would play Bach and you know his daughter would just like scream off camera no only Chopin and she became known as the Chopin baby on TikTok <laughs> Daddy, Chopin. Uh, baby not right now Chopin. baby not right now we don't do Chopin before nine and so I found those videos to be <laughs> very very entertaining and so I do think you know it's sort of the more I think about it the more I'm thinking of all these singular moments that are pointing to the fact that, yeah, maybe my sort of classical consciousness is evolving and is strengthening through social media and through these sort of massively popular cultural outputs. All right. Well, let me let me spin out a, a, you know, seat of the pants theory here, see what you think about it. But, you know, prepping this segment after watching Swarm did make me think of a connection between you know, popular music has been so anchored in stardom. And, you know, back in the 90s when I first started to really seriously listen to jazz, it was the first, like, non-rock, non-pop music I really got into. I was like, oh, wait a second. I was like, oh, music without the star, right? Music without this other component of a certain kind of image-based worship as the centerpiece of it. And Classical takes that even further, right? Like if I can, I can obviously picture what Miles Davis or John Coltrane look like. I can't picture what, you know, Maurice Ravel looks like or Johannes Brahms. Like we're, it's, it's something about music so totally beyond 
the apotheosis, the highly commercialized apotheosis of a star figure. It's the anti-swarm in a weird way, right? The anti-beehive that that does feel to me, Dana, like a kind of relief. I mean, I'm obviously only, only describing my own experience in some way. I'm getting the knit brow again here. I've gone horribly wrong. But does this ring any bells at all with either one of you? I mean, I think Salieri would disagree, but I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I think of the three of us, I'm probably the most frequent listener to classical music because in my own genre pileup, I think that would probably be the first genre that I listen to, um, whether with lyrics or without, but really pretty old. Like, I rarely listen to classical music pre about 1800 or so. It pretty much stops at the Baroque era. I mean, I have no idea how this fits into Ted Joy's argument about downloads, but something that I really miss is the richness of classical radio. And in fact, I would love listeners to tell us if we have listeners who have favorite classical radio stations around the world that you can stream and that you can discover new things on, specifically that have really knowledgeable, great DJs. I really, really miss that. We only have one classical station left in New York, WQXR. And while I listen to it and am a member and couldn't live without it, it sometimes gets me down that their offerings are pretty square. <laughs> like, I mean, I am not the most knowledgeable person in terms of identifying pieces. And I would say that 85% of the time when I turn on that radio, mm-hmm. I'll say, oh, God, it's the mm-hmm. William Tell Arna, Overture. Yeah, <laughs> Ina Klein and Nacht Music. It's yeah. some incredibly familiar yeah. piece of, of music. <laughs> so true. And, uh, and I mean, I can remember in my own lifetime of listenership to that station when they used to have some quirkier offerings and, you know, people that brought newer things to the air. And I'm not blaming QXR for that because they have to survive and keep their donations going. But, yeah, I really do miss that um, that diverse world of, of classical radio DJs. So if anybody has one they love and you can listen to their music streaming, please tell us about it. That or a pot, like classical podcast. I mean, there have to be just the bumper crop. Of- well, the problem is that music rights are really hard uh, to get. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I've bummer. talked about this with classical DJs yeah. in the past, and they would love to do podcasts, but it's too expensive to get the rights. Okay. As always, shout out to listeners. Shoot us an email if you have like specific kind of autobiographical classical music journeys you want to share with us, but also just stuff you listen to and why. And and, and if you've turned to it recently and have some, um, you know, half-baked theory as to why, we'd love to hear that too. Okay, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you got? Okay, well, I'm going to flow straight out of our classical music segment since I feel like it's a huge topic and I want to do more justice to my my love of it. I'm going to endorse something classical this week, um, as I not infrequently do. And I, I'm pretty sure that I've never endorsed this before. You can stop me, Steve, if you remember me having talked about this before. But So the mezzo-soprano L- Lorraine Hunt is this legendary interpreter of, of Baroque song. She, um, she died really young. I think she died in her early 50s. I remember seeing her perform probably four or five years before she died, um, seeing her perform Handel Arias live and just being incredibly moved. She sings classical repertory like it's completely modern and fresh. Mm. There's something about her voice, and you have to hear it to hear what I'm talking about, but she never has that kind of pneumatic bellows sound that an operatic singer can have, you know? She just has this very fresh, um, very alive way of delivering classical repertory, and particularly some of my favorite repertory, which is Baroque music. Sing 
So uh, I was going to recommend, she has two different CDs of, of Handel arias, just, just arias alone, cold from the operas that surround them. And it really is kind of the beginning of opera. Handel is, you know, the first to, to create opera-like works, but before the kind of golden era of opera. And even if you're not an opera person, I'm not really a classical opera person myself, I think these, these Handel arias will really speak to you. They're beautifully melodramatic. And she was known, like Callis, as an actress as well as a singer. So these are under her married name, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, after she married the composer Peter Lieberson. They're from the late 90s, and there's two different ones, both called Lorraine Hunt Handel Arias, um, but I recommend the first of the two. I believe it was released in 2004, and it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous selection of Baroque music. I think you can stream it. You can definitely find the CD for sale online. So Lorraine Hunt, Singing Handel. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now on Spotify. There they are. Uh, I can't wait. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, Nadira, what do you have? So very, very quickly before my actual endorsement, I just want to mention Lance Reddick, who has recently passed. He was a very, very amazing actor. He was in John Wick. We didn't have time to mention him, but he was mostly known for The Wire and Fringe and a whole bunch of other things. And he's amazing. So, you know, just check out all of his work. And I'm definitely going to miss him showing up every now and again. My actual endorsement is for an app and website called Music League. So this is an app and website where you and your friends or strangers can join a league and there's someone who's in charge of it and they set prompts. And so every week there's a new prompt for a song submission. So it could be songs for spring or it could be songs that have no lyrics or, you know, anything like that. And you and all of your friends will submit a song. And then once everyone's submitted, everyone will vote on their favorite songs that were submitted, (laughs) either how well they stuck to the prompt or just how much they enjoy them. And then it ranks you. (laughs) So my friends and I are now maybe on our 12th or 13th round. And I'm not doing too bad. I'm at, I think, fifth place of 16, you know, so so we're doing okay. But it's been so much fun to sort of just refamiliarize myself with older songs. I think one of our upcoming rounds are songs that your parents listen to that you now love. And so, you know, it just sort of solidifies your relationship to older songs that you might not have thought about in a while. It also makes you familiar with the type of music that your friends like. And, you know, you get all these sort of different interpretations of what is a spring song or what is a summer song or what is a good workout song and all of these things. And it's just been so fun. A little stressful when when your pick doesn't do well that week. But overall, it's been really, really fun. So I would recommend the website and app called Music League. What was the pick of yours that just killed it, that got, you know, the Oh, most? that's a good question. Oh, for... The very, very first round, it's kind of a cop-out, but for the very, very first round that I was involved in, the round was um, Music Without Lyrics. And I, of course, did Giant Steps by Coltrane. And that definitely, sweet. That'll that'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good choice. All right, for my endorsement, let me just preface it very quickly by saying I'm not really endorsing Liberty's Journal itself, the thing that Leon Weaseltier started after he got effectively Me Too'd and fired from the New Republic. Setting that aside, it did publish an extraordinary essay, I thought, by Mary Gateskill, the short story writer, best known for her short stories. It's called The Trials of the Young, a Semester. And what I loved about it is, first of all, it's just beautifully written. It's subtle, it's elegant, it's um, lucid. 
And it's also tentative in the way an essay should be. It's a process of discovery about her own experiences and feelings regarding teaching university students over the last, she'd been doing it for decades. And, but it's recently whether or not a change has happened in the political and sort of emotional makeup of young people, which is obviously a a big subject now. And she doesn't give, there's nothing didactic about this essay at all. There's nothing polemic. She's approaching it as a fiction writer might, as a exploration and attempt to just understand something about why people behave the way they do, what the origin of their unhappinesses might be. Um, It's an attempt to not simplify what's densely layered, highly complicated, and sometimes incendiary reality. And I felt as though I were closer to the essence of that reality by the end of her piece without someone telling me what to think. And definitely, I was never told to be angry or outraged. So I thought that that was a real accomplishment given the nature of this subject. I recommend it to people. I think it's just an exemplary piece of writing by Mary Gateskill. It's called The Trials of the Young, a semester, and we'll link to it. Nadira, thank you so much for coming on the show again. As always, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dana, that was a fun one. It was. All right, you will find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We love it when you do. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Nadira Goff and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. 
Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.